Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Wines of Bordeaux. Visit their website at Bordeaux.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome, Mike Calameco here, Food Talk. We're live today out of Bushwick. It's October. It's fall in New York City. Great time to be here. It's a real pleasure today. I've got a, a, a really interesting guest. I don't, do, I don't do too much international stuff out of this show because it's radio and it's live, and I prefer to have all of my interviews when I can be in studio rather than over the phone, and uh, they just come out better to me when you can sit across the table from somebody. I never, I've never liked phone interviews in all the years I've done radio. So a couple of years back, we filmed two shows for my PBS series. They're up on YouTube if you want to watch them. They're already there. They've already aired, so we've posted them up there. Um, on the cuisine of Peru, we flew into Lima, then got up to Cusco, which is, if you've ever been to Machu Picchu, it's, you'd go through Cusco. It's the high, 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 high city. It's the staging ground for any trips you're going to take to Machu Picchu. It's a great old city. It's got a great old culture to it. Some really interesting food. We got to see the farmers farming at that altitude, which was crazy. Um, again, if you've never been there, uh, it, the altitude's so high. One of the troubles I had, and it was, apparently a lot of people do this, is the first night I couldn't sleep. <laughs> it was crazy. Uh-huh. Everybody said, don't drink too much alcohol. Don't. And I was like, okay, I won't drink much. Da, da. And I remember, I remember like being a good boy and going to bed, uh, you know, at 11 o'clock and laying, <laughs> laying awake for the next eight hours, blinking without even yawning. I'm like, this really sucks. I'm not even remotely tired. So the next day I was a basket case, just absolutely dead. But the night after I was good. But anyway, um, after Cusco, we flew down to Lima, and we visited some really great restaurants, met some really great chefs. We tried to cover a lot of uh, territory, but one of the restaurants that I was really stoked to visit is Restaurant Central, which is in the Miraflores district of Lima, Peru. Lima is the capital of the country. It's a coastal city. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, uh, if you live in Lima and you want to surf, <laughs> you can just get your board, get on a bus, and get to the beach. It's crazy. I mean, it was breaking with some nice rights the day I was there. Or maybe they were left. I don't remember which way they were going. But it's, 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 a, it's a city that's on the coastline, and it's also really blessed with an interesting topography. Um, it's kind of, it always seems to me like it was in, in, like in the fog, like in a mist. Like the closer you got to the water, no matter what it was like five miles inland, as you got up to the coast, it was just kind of foggy and kind of gray, and it gets almost no rain. Almost no rain, like literally like it's bone dry. So uh, we were in a few restaurants where there was no roof. And I'm like, what happens when it rains? And they're like, eh, it doesn't rain. <laughs> so it's crazy. So Miraflores is this neighborhood, this beautiful neighborhood uh, where Central's located. That's maybe a half a mile, maybe a quarter mile in from the coastline. And the restaurant itself, when you're walking down the street, it's a residential street. So there's no, you know, unlike New York where it's commercial and residential and not too too mixed. Here it looks like people live in all of these houses. And Restaurant Central is in what almost looks like a single, a big single family house. Um, and then you enter and it's just this gorgeous space that was got renovated with a kitchen in the back with lots of natural light, a rooftop garden, um, and a cuisine that's really unique. So anyway, my, my long-winded intro here is for my guest today, Virgilio, who is the chef um, at Restaurant Central. He's an amazing guy. Restaurant Central is... Do you have... Virgilio Martinez is his name. Do you have, um, do you have Michelin yet in Lima? No, there, there, there is no Michelin stars in Lima, but we have one restaurant in London and we have one, one star. Okay. There. And you were, just to give props, I mean, they, first of all, I was really blown away by his food. It's amazing. He has a great new book out. So again, Virgilio Martinez, Restaurant Central. The book is just called Central or Central, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, it's gorgeous. It's published by Faden. Um, you were 
I mean, to give him his props, I think I'm not the biggest fan of all of the because now it seems like uh, you know. I used to. I'm an old guy, so I thought it was like Michelin in France. Michelin in France was great, and Michelin in Europe was pretty accurate too. But when Michelin decided to come to New York, I'm like, no fucking way! You don't get out of here. You don't know the city. It's a totally different culture. I mean, I get it. They're trying to sell books. That's what they're doing. Um, but there's also a big list called the Pellegrino list now, which is huge. And I don't know why Pellegrino or how Pellegrino got in the restaurant reviewing business, but they have. And chefs love it. It's a big deal. So Pellegrino picks the top 50 restaurants every year. And it's really pretty important. I remember when Daniel Hum, who's the chef at 11 Madison, the first year that they were told they were on the list, they weren't told where they were on the list, and they flew to London. Daniel and Will, his business partner and, and, and co-owner, they flew to London, and they're in that big room with their tuxedos on, and the announcements are going out, <laughs> 1, 10, 20, 30, and then they're like, every time someone else gets picked, you have this sinking feeling, like, why am I here? And I think they were picked in the 40s the first year, and it just totally bummed them out. Yeah, They were just like... They just went. They told me they went back to the hotel room and just said, "This sucks. <laughs> how are we going to get better than? How can we get into the top, you know, twenty? Or how can we get into the top half?" And of course, now I think they're number two or three, and your restaurant's number four or five, right? Yeah, but you know, the first time I, I was number fifty, you know, and I was, you know, kind of a, the worst of the best. <laughs> <laughs> right. <That's... laughs> it was. It was fun. Uh, well, actually, it wasn't. It wasn't that fun, you know. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- those lists are, are important for for exposure because before nobody had an idea of Central, and, and then four years ago uh, we were like just probably the restaurant was uh, maybe four guests per day uh, for lunch. Seriously, that quiet. Fifteen and eight, and now we do fifty fifty. Sold out, sold out. And, yeah, and and booked, and on and those lists and those missions, whatever is coming is good. I mean, it's, we are like uh, happy to, to, to be there, but we don't work for lists. Of course. That, that's, that's something we are very clear because it's very subjective. And Completely subjective. I mean, we yeah, all know that. I mean, being number one, number two, number three, I mean, there's, there's no numbers in cuisine. In, it's, yeah. I agree with you, but yet, to your, I mean, to, to your case, it really does... Friends of mine who get great reviews, the phone just rings. It generates business. So if you get a good review, if you're lucky enough to have a cuisine that relates to the reviewers, then suddenly they can put you on the map and the phone rings. And like you said, you go from doing 10 covers at lunch to selling the no, dining room. Of course, the, those lists are very uh, powerful. I mean, like they, they make people travel just to Lima yeah. to eat. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I guarantee you that if you look at the, if you look at Per Se, Belnadin, 11 Madison Park, Jean Georges, on any given day, half the dining room or more is not from New York. The yeah. people that came to town and just said, yeah, I want to, we know we're going to be in October in New York. Let's book a table at 11 Madison if we can. So it's tourists, uh, gastronomic tourists. But let's tell your story because it's funny. So you're, you're a native son and so you're Peruvian. Yeah, I'm Peruvian. Born and raised. So, and Peru was a funny place because you had the, for years, politics was really difficult. I mean, you had terrorism, you had kind of an ongoing guerrilla war. Yeah, I mean, uh, my generation was, uh, we used to live, we, we, used, we used to str- struggle with uh, terrorism and all this uh, Sendero Luminoso, all these things right. and uh, blackouts. Uh, so, uh, and at one point we were like uh, thinking about, I mean, we didn't, we didn't think that there were, there were no opportunities in, in, in Lima, so we most of my generation, we just we just left Lima and we start to fly. We start to move to to uh, let's say I went to New York. I worked at Lutes, and uh, then I moved to London. Then I moved to South Asia. So I wasn't. I didn't want to live in, in Lima uh, until the last uh, twenty years, right. where th- things have have changed a lot. And now Lima is a, it's a beautiful city and. I'm so proud to be uh, Limian and Peruvian. It's funny because when I was doing the trip to Peru, I did a lot of homework. I always try and do a lot of research. And I was trying to go back and trying to follow the food scene in Lima. And it was just like 
there was no food scene in Lima until like 2002, 2003, 2004. And it was just a couple of chefs then who, just like yourself, every chef I talked to, they, they were very proud of Peru. They were very proud of the ingredients of the yeah. history. But they all said we had to train overseas because there was no restaurant scene in Lima. No, there were not even cooking, uh, culinary schools. And, and that's why we had to leave. And, and nowadays we have like... Uh, let's say like hundreds of, of, of uh, culinary schools. The thing is that uh, nowadays we understand that we, we, we are not competing, all the chefs, we are not competing uh, because uh, what we want is people uh, from abroad to come to Peru and enjoy different restaurants. And I think uh, we are we're working, uh, you know, sharing uh, our products and sharing knowledge and stuff like that. So your background, so your, your dad was a lawyer, your brother was a lawyer. I'm always curious as to how people became chefs. You went to school, but you weren't, you didn't feel like acting, like sitting at a desk. No, I didn't want to. Uh, right. Uh, it wasn't my thing. So no. you went to cooking school. I went to cooking school uh, before I wanted to be a pro skateboarder. And, and you, I, so what kind of skate did you do? Uh, freestyle, freestyle, vert? Yeah, freestyle, freestyle yeah. urban skating. Rodney Mullion, you know, you know he, he was my, my idol. So I wanted to be like... Something like that. So I, um, <laughs> I, um, I traveled to California and I went to a skate park and I broke my, my, my shoulder. <laughs> and then I, I went back to, to Lima and I broke my, the other shoulder again. And that was if, you know, my family were not... Uh, were you in a half pipe? How'd you break your shoulder? Half pipe, yeah. You were in a half pipe? I mean, I was, a street food, uh, I was a street guy, so uh, I don't know why I went to the <laughs> half pipe. But it, it is not my thing. It wasn't my style. Right. And, um, yeah, Ouch. at one point I was like, yeah, I see, um, what can I do? Uh, so I decided to, to, to continue traveling and, yeah, and, you know, it's very easy to find a, a job as a cook, even if you don't speak the language. Mm. So mm. I moved to Singapore, Bangkok, I, different places without, you know, speaking uh, Mandarin or whatever I had supposed to be. So I was just peeling potatoes and seeing and, and, you know, learning about cultures and that was my thing. And I, I wasn't expecting to, to come back to Peru because I, I didn't, I didn't see, you know, I didn't see any, any, I, I, I didn't have this uh, Peruvian identity mm. until now. Mm. So probably you've seen that, uh, you know, all these Peruvian chefs, they're very proud of their products and they always talk about this, uh, 4,000 variety of potatoes and, and, and hundreds of, of corn and quinoa and all this stuff. So, so I think there's a lot to do over there. Yeah, no, it's amazing. So, the, so the, the food scene in Lima is really, has just exploded over the last 15, 20 years. And I, I'm convinced if I went back and somebody was paying for my meal every night, you could eat 30 nights out at 30 different restaurants, never eating the same meal, and you'd eat fantastic. Yeah, that, that that's great about Peru because uh, the restaurant they are very very different. Yeah, because we have like a you, you, and I think you've been there like a Nikkei cuisine, like a Japanese Peruvian. Yeah, because you have those influences. Let's talk about that too. Now we have, yeah. we've got tons of time. So I mean, you have the influence of the of the natives, yes. right? Um, the, almost like an ancient cuisine. And then you have Spanish influence. Yes. You have Japanese influence, which yes. I wasn't aware of, which is funny. So you have this kind of Nikkei cuisine that exists that's kind of a mashup. And then no one can figure out what the origins of it was. But, you know, when you think of ceviche, you think of Peru. This this beautiful idea, especially the modern ceviche. Not, I mean, your grandmother's ceviche would have marinated a lot longer and yeah. been very over, over you know, and when cooked. Japanese came they, 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 they taught us how, how to marinate uh, ceviche and how, how to slice the, 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 the ceviche how to slice the tirato. Uh you know even Nobu Nobu uh, correct. Nobu was working in correct. Peru in Peru before he came before to the he came and yeah. he got like all, all these yep. uh, celebrity chef of course yeah yeah, so you've got that the, this sort of mashup of cuisines and then the ingredients are just insane um, you, because you have such geography, you've got the, you, you're right on the coast. So the entire country is wrapped by a coastline, the Pacific coast, but that Humboldt current was a pretty unique experience. Because yeah. You know that, uh, we have the mangroves, uh, mangroves, and then we have like a, a, a very warm sea and then we have a very cold sea. So it makes like a different ecosystems. 
and tons of bait fish. So yeah. lots of, there's fish eating fish, eating fish, eating fish. So fish, fish of all kinds yeah. of sizes and shapes. Yeah. And mollusks and, and lots of seaweed now that we're discovering is yeah, edible seaweeds, and you can play uh, with. They're, they're, yeah, seaweed it's just crazy. They, how, how the seaweeds are flying to, to Japan nowadays, like, we see, we see, it's, it's just amazing. So we have lots of seaweed, and then we have the, well, our desertic coast, which is also inspiring, um, which is Lima. You, you, yeah. you mentioned Lima, how um, um, foggy and, and, you know, all this humidity. And, and then we have the valleys in the Andes, which are very bright and colorful. And then we have the altitude of the Cordillera Los Andes, where... You find these beautiful potatoes, and, and you have that story. Chicos. You have that story in the book of hiking up to visit someone that you knew, and there was no road, so you the road runs out. So you're above, I forget how high, how many meters it was, but like two, something crazy, two thousand meters above ground, and you hike to this gentleman's farm where he's lived, his wife had just died recently, yeah. but his daughter lives nearby, his family is kind of with him, and how many how many meters above sea level was that? That was about three meet, uh, three thousand meters above sea level. It's, it's so, so hard I mean, to breathe. You've been, you've been there. And it's hard to breathe. I mean, there's a lack of oxygen over there, and and but the soil is, you know, being being that high. Uh, you know, these people they don't have a, a, an understanding about what's what's organic because they have this adoration over the soil. So they they just. Whenever they have they have they want to use pesticides or something, they just take a mortar and and they they just you know uh, crush some chilies and some legumes and they just add this to the plants and <laughs> and they they they, they, really, they know it. really respect uh, uh, the what they call the, the Pachamama the Mother Earth. Mm. And then then when we go, when we go to the to the jungle to the Amazon, uh, we see how how these people is so related. I mean so. I mean, they, sometimes they speak to the trees and they speak to the plants, and and, and they have this relationship with plants, which for 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 a guy from like me from Lima, uh, it's quite unique. So uh, we've been working with this for maybe yeah yeah about ten years, just trying to understand this the whole cosmovision of, of and all the cultural aspects and also ingredients and uh, and stories. But I think there's more. Um, Probably you know these uh, um, very classic Peruvian dishes like uh, ceviche, lomo saltado. We don't do that, um, and that's why probably our book is, is about innovation in and, and, sh- and showcasing Peruvian very unknown Peruvian products like like edible clays, like like uh, algae in in the mountains and stuff like that. Like yeah, it's a, it's I've never. I've never, I'm trying to think, I've traveled all over Europe, I've eaten it over the years, you know, every three-star Michelin, most of every three-star Michelin chef that's been from Freddy Girardet back in the days to Jules Robuchon when he was at Jemat, to Sanderin's at Orchestra, I mean, you name them. And and then I've, I, then I've watched the American food scene really go from being not so great when I was a young chef. It was just, it just we wasn't the same. We, we didn't have this great, link to the farms. We didn't have uh, uh, big markets to buy f- everything fresh. Small farmers weren't just buying restaurants. It was still factory farming. So I don't care. When you were at Lutess, who was the chef? Eberhard Müller? Yeah. Yeah, Eberhard. Eberhard and I worked together at Windows. He's a great chef. Really underrated. And then I, I got uh, David Fu, the, 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 the other chef. And then, uh, yeah, Lutes uh, sadly closed. Sadly it closed because Andre, Salt- oh, Andre Saltner sold it and Eberhard came in. It was a very hard restaurant to continue. But even in those days, what you were cooking with at Lutes, what we were getting was, you know, things that were coming in off of a truck. We did the best we could with what we had. But my point is when I look at American, look at a restaurant like this, Roberta's, and all the restaurants I go to all week long in New York, it's so much better than when I was a young chef. The food's better. The ingredients are better. And it's not so much the technique has changed. It's just the ingredients have gotten much oh, better uh, in America. The ingredients, uh, I, I wouldn't say that much that the technique, it's just ingredients, yeah. the environment, and um, uh, well, the people, and, and you know, uh, I think uh, emotions are very important. So, sometimes we take it for, for granted, this, you know, how you feel, who is, who is, you know, who is, you know, the hospitality thing is very important nowadays. And yeah, things are getting more casual. More and ca- I think that's good for, for, for Latin America, for, for, for Peru, because 
we are very well known to be casual and relaxed. <laughs> Sometimes too relaxed. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the whole but, service end is completely changed. The front of the house is completely a different story, too. No, yeah, our idea is very, uh, well, we are doing like probably, uh, I don't know how to call it, fine dining or whatever, but uh, yeah, I mean, we are so committed to do innovation. We are committed to explore uh, Peru. So once a week, we have to go to different places in Peru. We can go to the to the jungle, to the to the Andes, to the uh, to the different 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 seas, and uh, yeah, we have to conti- we have to continue changing the menus and 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 doing more dishes and and you know because we're just just getting new ingredients every time. You're yeah. So I was what I was trying to say, and I got sidetracked was. There was a, there's an older chef that people don't really remember in New York, Larry Forgione. His son Mark Forgione's a big shot now, has a yeah, couple of restaurants. Yeah, but his yeah. his dad Larry was really interesting. When his dad was at the River Cafe in the 1980s, it, he had a menu. I remember reading there, and he had a menu when he was listing all of his American ingredients. That this was the the bison was from here, the morels are from Michigan. And I thought this is really interesting. Nobody was doing anything like that. And now we, I fast forward to meeting you, and then seeing your book, and and having had the chance to film with you. And I've never met a chef who's more obsessed with, in a good way, with not just cooking locally, but with kind of making it your mission to have, like, your kitchen is part of the Peruvian ecosystem. It's almost like yeah. if you – it, because you, you literally, like what you just said, you spend a portion of – and your staff, not just you. You spend a portion of your work week literally traveling around the country trying to find new ingredients. And then – I mean, at some point, you made the decision. Well, you talk about the history of the restaurant because you you met your wife at at one point. She's She's a chef. Pia. Yeah. You met your wife and at some point you, you want to open up a restaurant together and you did a bunch of traveling. There was some delays, and then your whole idea for the restaurant kind of changed. Talk about that. Talk about how. Yeah, I, I tell you one, one one story which is very. Yeah, it was it was obvious. Um, I spent like maybe ten years just traveling, and when I came back came back to Peru, uh, I was very influenced by different cuisines. So my food was very eclectic and. Probably I was a bit. Imma- uh, I wasn't mature to, right. to you know to, to to deal with a with a with a restaurant uh, with a concept. So uh, people were were saying like, oh, this is just amazing. This this restaurant is amazing. You made me feel like I'm in New York. I'm in London, <laughs> and I was like so upset. You know, like so. I, you know, the, the the whole idea of being central is like. You have to experience Peru. So uh, we closed the restaurant for a while, and I worked with Pia. And how can we conceptualize uh, Central as a Peruvian restaurant, doing innovation without doing classic uh, classic dishes? So we designed just tasting menus based on altitudes. So being one of the most biodiverse places in the world, right? Um, and we were just traveling, and we were, we were talking to to Andean communities and Amazonian communities, and they see that the world in in, in a vertical way, not not in a flat, not in a horizontal way. So the way we do, it. and uh, and we 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 say like, oh, why not? I mean, our best approach to, to nature could be like, you know, if if we can start from 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 the sea, then going to the to the desert, then going to the valleys, and then going to the to the Andes, and then going to the Amazonia. Everything with uh, 16 uh, courses or 18 courses, uh, it depends on, you know. Right, on the menu. On the menu. And it's about the exploration. Uh, it's about uh, the altitude of, of Peru. So you mentioned that, uh, yeah, of course, when you are like a, up to 4,000 meters of its level, Probably you don't find much stuff, but you find lots of lots of tubers because that's right. You talk about the stuff, at the, the, right? So the, sorry to dig, right? So so when you get to that altitude, it's so bare. It's so hot. There's very little oxygen. There's a lot of direct sunlight. There's wind. So that the life that's there is actually the life that's underground. You discovered yeah. these great tubers, and you had again back to your friend. He had these toma- He had these potatoes that he buried that ferment. And you said the first time you saw them, it was almost like. I, I don't. I never have seen them, but they were so pungent, so stinky. You almost like, how do you even eat this? It's almost almost disgusting. But then you take yeah. them back to the restaurant and you have a dish with them where you end up. I forget what you do. You boiled, you dehydrated, then you yeah. fry it so it almost looked like a chicharron. That's a that, yeah, That's a, a fermentation of potato which is called uh, tocos, and then, yeah, the, the, uh, that's 
since uh, the praying cast time uh, is a technique. And yeah, whenever we bring the, the, these potatoes to, to the kitchen, people is just, you know, people haze that and, and <laughs> they know that the tacos is all over the kitchen. And, but it's, it's fun, you know, it's, just, it's a very nice way to connect to our, our nature and, and see how, you know, our, our food doesn't, doesn't have to be, all the dishes don't have to be very, very tasty. I think what is important is the whole story about uh, and, and the experience. I wouldn't say that the dishes are, are disgusting, but uh, they have to be good. But I think the message is more important. We are we are talking about preservation of ecosystems, yeah, and yeah. which is very important uh, uh, nowadays in our life. And it's not just about promoting Peruvian cuisine. It's not just about promoting Central. Of course, now we are doing a book and we are doing some promotion. But but I think we have to think about uh, this ecosystem. When we speak to people in 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 the Andes and in the Amazonia, they are really. Um, committed to, to, to their, their work yeah. and their ecosystem and they want they want to maintain this this uh, very fertile and, and beautiful landscape. I think we're all on that page. I was just uh, with a friend of mine on Tuesday night, Pascalina Peltier. She uh, has a restaurant called Rouge Tomate that's just reopening. She's a master psalm and she had Isabelle Legeron, who's the London-based master of wine writer. But there wow. were all proponents of natural wine, of just going... F- for the same reason that, you know, if you go to a vineyard and, and you're spraying and you're using chemicals and pesticides and fertilizer, it's dead soil. You're killing everything. So yeah, you, now there's this real blowback. We're going to have the first ever. We're gonna, it's coming up in November. I'll be doing a panel, but we're going to have a, uh, a natural wine event in that's Brooklyn fantastic. next month. Yeah, because, uh, you know, talking about preservation of ecosystem, I mean, it's very easy to kill the one entire ecosystem just doing one thing. Yeah. You know, just cutting one, one, one tree. Just you know, like uh, that's why uh, our approach is, is beyond the, the, the foraging. I, I think we have to understand the whole thing. So we work with uh, different different groups of people, like uh, biologists and anthropologists, historians, and and uh, and artists, which uh, are providing uh, knowledge to, to to our work. So your your menu is neat. So I had a, I don't know how many courses this was an eight or ten or eleven course lunch when I was there. And to your point, so you sit down and there are these descriptions that are kind of suggestive, kind of tongue in cheek. But next to every menu description, you're showing where this item comes from in terms of sea level. So the first dish I had was spiders on a rock, and that was minus five meters sea level. The next dish I had was high-altitude rainforest, it was called. It was 860 meters above sea level. Then we have a, a, another dish that was crazy. I, uh, you tell me what it was if you remember. It was called Andean Plateau, 3,900 feet above sea level, and it was tunta, anato, and black herbs. Yeah, and coca leaves, yeah. <laughs> Crazy. I mean, crazy. So, no, no. so this is a menu. I mean, like the minute you walk in your restaurant, there's this real sense of even to the point where tell me when you made the switch, because at some point you decided. So not just not just we're going to use only Peruvian ingredients like proteins or vegetables or fish, but we don't even want to use like flour or xanthan gum because you also your cuisine is very. I don't want to say it's molecular cuisine in a way, but it, it, it kind of reminds me of that very modernist cuisine. Well, yeah, you know, probably when you see you see this food, you see you probably see that oh, this is quite you know this label of molecular cuisine, but we are not molecular at all. At all. I mean, uh, it's very difficult now to put a label. Uh, modernist, on it. modernist is all I would say. Yeah, but even so then, but even they, what's that mean? Yeah, modern. Uh, yeah, forget labels. But yeah, but. It is. It is very important. It's very important what you mentioned about uh, these uh, magic powders that, that that are all over the kitchens worldwide. Right. When so I we're, we're not using this anymore. I right. mean, we used to use them, and uh, because they, they, you, you can make beautiful things, you right. know, beautiful like. You know, spheres and, and right. You can sphericate. You can use xanthan gum. You can create. The, you can create yeah. textures and flavors yeah. by manipulation and free. I mean, if you think of what Grant Ackett did at Elaine, what Wiley was doing at WD Fifty, yeah. it's kind of you know. When I would go in the kitchens, I'm like, they would have these walls of jars labeled, and I'm like, 
what is this? Because I, when I was a chef, it was flour, water, sugar, salt, pepper. What is all this stuff? And, well, that's, you know, we use these ingredients. And they were like industrial ingredients, really. That- yeah, and, and that's, that's, again, go, going back to, 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 to biodiversity. I mean, having all these, these ingredients, like, why, why sh- should we be using sugar? So we don't, we don't right. sell sugar anymore. Right. Our dessert, they don't have sugar. So right. we extract uh, the sweetness from, from, from vegetables, from fruits, uh, from different, uh, different ingredients. The and same, even the starches, like you're the using same, these, the same starches. right? You're using these crazy, which is really, I mean, again. So this is, uh, if, if you tuned in later, you're wondering what we're talking about. Uh, Virgilio Martinez is my guest. His restaurant Central in Lima, Peru. Um, it's it's almost to me, and this, this book really goes to this because it's it's almost like you have invented your own cuisine because when you're bringing in starches whatever the starches are that you're using, cassava or this and that, you're, you don't know how much. Is it a teaspoon? Is it a tablespoon? Is it a half? A, how's it going to work? How's it going to react? You've, you've, by research, by trial and error, is the only way you figure yeah, this out. Yeah, th- that's tricky because, uh, I mean, in the restaurant you have the recipes, but ingredients change. Nature change. Right. So... Some, we we put the amounts for the dish that we we did we did for for for, for the book, but probably it, it can't work again. So maybe <laughs> we have to add a bit more of of, of this bark, a bit more of this freeze dried potato, which is called tunta. Right, we we'll talk about that in a bit too. Yeah, okay. you know the, the, those, those thickeners and those, those uh, gums or gels that are coming from natural uh, natural places. It's a great story. It's a great book. So we're going to take a quick break um, to give a shout out to the people that help pay for this show and other shows on the network. And we're going to come right back and finish the hour with Chef Virgilio Martinez talking about we're going to board out a little bit more specifically on, on some of the dishes in the book and some of the ingredients. Because, again, if you've never been to Peru, it's an astonishingly diverse country for uh, biodiversity in terms of its ecosystems. It's coastal, it's mountainous, it's high plains, it's got everything. Um, so we'll be back right after this spot with Virgilio. Stay tuned for that. Music for this commercial break is brought to you by Teeth People, and this track is called Poetry is Dead. She's her own female. She's her own female. That's why I like her. I like her a lot. Hey, folks, Mike Kalameko here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-'80s when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, the Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable source olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their families moved here, so there's Colavita's living in Rome, Colavita's living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I'd recommend you try it as well. So when you think of the great wine regions of the world historically, I mean, you're, you're going to be led back to Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, okay, maybe Piedmont, Italy, too. And as a chef growing up, boy, if you were working in great restaurants in the 70s and 80s, they were mostly all French, and we grew up drinking Bordeaux and Burgundy and Champagne with impunity. Well, fast forward to today, and I just, just got back from the 2015 Bordeaux Harvest. We were there for a week with a bunch of sommeliers. It was so much fun, and I'll tell you, 
<laughs> this isn't your grandfather's Bordeaux. There's a whole new generation of young vignerons working with this great terroir that they've lived on, this soil that they know that they've grown up with, and the great varietals that we all know and love, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec. You know, this, this style of Bordeaux now that's younger, that's fresher, that's meant to be consumed now and not cellared, because honestly, which of us has a cellar? And who wants to buy a bottle of wine and wait 10 years? So... The Bordeaux whites are amazing. Uh, you know, Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, like, hello, two grapes that we know. The reds tell all sorts of different stories from the left bank style that are a little more Cabernet Sauvignon driven, a little more structured right bank, a little more Merlot, a little easier, um, a little more upfront friendly. But if you haven't thought about drinking Bordeaux wine, give it another shot. For 15 to $35 in that price range, which is my price range, there's tremendous value in there. So if you're walking past a Bordeaux wine, stop, grab a great bottle. These are some of the most food-friendly wines on planet Earth. Hey, we're back. <laughs> that didn't take long. <laughs> All right. Again, my guest is Virgilio Martinez. His restaurant is Central. It's in Lima, Peru. Um, so to the biodiversity bit. So I've, I've, I've traveled a lot. And I remember once I was on one of the Hawaiian islands and just it, – it, it was amazing. I mean, you have the coastline, you've got elevations all the way up, you've got these incredible temperature swings, you've got active volcanoes. Well, of course. You've got a whole lot of microclimates present on one little island. And then when I was reading about Peru, in the world, we now have listed 117 different microclimates. Yes. Peru has 84. Yeah. That's crazy. That just kind That's of goes to the diversity. crazy, and that allows uh, us to, to, to be aware of what what what's our, our our challenges you know like using these ingredients but i i think the message of uh, it you can do uh, it doesn't exclude anybody to do this thing in in different places like you, you mentioned one country another country uh, it's not just about peru the thing is that yeah of course in in peru we are very close to the andes and we are close to the amazonia so we which is Sometimes we go like uh, only 20 kilometers and, and you find another microclima with something totally different. And that's, that's amazing. So that's what, what we do. So we, we kind of um, are exploring, cooking, exploring, cooking. Uh, Quite literally. I mean, literally. You're saying that and I can see people rolling their eyes, but you're, you're literally traveling around with your crew to the far corners of the country in sources of inspiration and ingredients. Yeah, because I, I, we get, we get, you know, we get pictures of, of the landscape. I, I, get, I can be staring uh, for five hours, maybe one beautiful landscape in the Andes and just see ingredients. And then I get the, the, the idea. So, so when people ask, because this is a very common question, how's your, your creative process? I say like, I'm just, you know, listening and talking to people. And just looking at the landscape and just getting ingredients. <coughs> you had a story. I, I'm trying to figure out what page. You, you'll remember better than I. You had a story where you're, you're, you're on one of these trips and you're sitting on a coastline. This is it. <laughs> you're sitting. Well, anyway, talk about this dish, Fossil de con Conca, Concha, however concha, you describe it. Yeah, because yeah. this is exactly what you're talking about. This sort of this imagination taking you to a place so you're you're high up somewhere uh, in the desert and you're looking at the ground or whatever it was and you find what looks like a scallop shell and you're thinking holy shit like a million years ago this was underwater yeah and then how do i combine that so talk about what this dish is because it, it really speaks to your process and the restaurant yeah it, it, it's about um just seeing uh, and traveling, and in that in, in that plate, um, we saw this this fossil of concha of, of scallops, um, and then we we decide to do something with that. It's not it's not very easy because, <laughs> of course, um, when we talk about local cuisine, probably we uh, th people think that we are yeah of course we are Peruvian we are locals but but. We are not locals. We we cook with the with the sea. We cook with, with the Andes. We cook uh, with the Amazonia. So for for that dish, we had to go to the sea, and uh, in the north of, of Peru, and and, and yeah, and we had to explore. We had to see how how the scallops are 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 are, are you know, growing, and uh, even 
most of the plates that we are using are coming from from if you see the photo uh is a, the plate is a, is a, is a, is it's a fossilized, fossilized scallop shell. It's yeah, gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, that's what you're serving it on. And what's tumba? What is this tumba? Because it's kind of it's you're using that in this dish as well. Yeah, you know, before before the Spanish came to to Peru, uh, we didn't have uh, limes. Right. So, no, no limes, no lemon, yeah, nothing, so no citrus. Our ceviche, uh, and that's that's probably yeah. We are we want to believe that the story is that's the right story that we have the the tumbo this. Uh, Passion because we have lots of passion fruits, and the first ceviches were were uh, made with with passion fruits mm. without without lemon, you know, because we need acidity. So right, because the acidity is really what the only thing that's quote cooking the fish. Yeah, it's yeah. cooking the fish. So uh, you know, fishermen were just you know getting fish in in, in in their boats, and they were they were doing ceviches a la minute with uh, the tumbo fruits. So they were just slicing the fish and then just adding tumbo. And probably they used to wait like maybe four hours, five hours to for the fish to be cooked. But nowadays, uh, since, again, these melting pots and all these influences, uh, uh, when the Japanese came, they, they were like, hey, no, no, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> just do 40 seconds with the acidity and the fish. And that's that's fine. That's nice about Peru because um, I I see we are very open minded to 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 listen to people and and I think uh, yeah of course we had this influence of, of Japanese uh, yeah, Chinese and, and and Arabs and then Spanish and Italians so it's quite it's quite a place a very good place to go and yeah of course we don't know, we don't do that cuisine because I think uh, it's very difficult to compete to to. A Chinese Peruvian who has been doing uh, right. That's this, that's this, their vocabulary. Yeah, that's their native tongue. Yeah. No, what you're doing. I mean, I think uh, Virgilio. I mean, what what makes you so exceptional is I think you're of all the Peruvian chefs that I met in the restaurants that we visited. Either they were I don't want to say more traditional, but I I kind of understood what they were doing in terms of their culinary vocabulary if i could use that yes, term of course. and what you're doing is you're inventing a new culinary vocabulary it's like a new language because you're going out and getting ingredients that are very unfamiliar even even for even for chefs in in, in in peru because you're traveling to the far corners of the country to find some crazy roots some crazy tree bark some crazy i mean you have that well we'll talk about some of them um and then you're bringing them back into the kitchen, and it's kind of like you don't have a map to work with because there is no, oh, my grandmother did that with this dish, or I once worked with a chef that did that with this dish, or I once waited in, at a restaurant. The answer is none of the above. I have no idea what I'm going to do with this. I'm just going to figure out what its characteristics are, and that's a different way of cooking. No, yeah, of course. Uh, we're very happy that uh, whenever you, you see a, a dish of Central, you, you're like, oh, this is Central. Uh, yeah, this is Peru. Uh, this is a landscape. Uh, those are Peruvian products, and uh, I think that's that's quite good. We 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 love to say like we are creating a new um, lexico, a new mm -hmm. a, a, lexicon, yeah. yeah, vocabulary, vocabulary, yeah, our food. Uh, you are. I mean, I don't think anybody can argue. And if you don't, if you don't believe me, grab a copy of the book, folks. If you can't get to Lima, which you I, really I should wanna, do, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to be pretentious about saying like we are creating something which is gonna change uh, things but I think we're, we're doing big changes in, 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 in um, uh, some regions that the economy are changing I mean uh, we're using uh, some ingredients that were, were just there like uh, this kushuro this, this cyanobacteria and this algae that they were just there and, and, and so talk about that dish because they come from a lake right yeah <coughs> I had that when I was there talk about that dish because it's crazy what is this what's the story behind this dish yeah, we went uh, once to, to 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 very high in the Andes, and and people were saying like, yeah, yeah, when 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 it happens to to, to rain a lot, uh, um, these little spheres of Andean water uh, start to 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 appear. And Looks like caviar or something, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And we just we have to go. I mean, we 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 talk to to the producers, and they're like, <laughs> "Oh, they are there." So we have to take a flight the day after, four <laughs> four in the morning, <laughs> and we get there with a the team, and we just go and and uh, and collect them one by one, and we take them to to, to Central. 
Which so is, that's our world. I mean, <laughs> uh, if, you know, having a restaurant and having a, a tasting menu is difficult. But I think it's which which is more difficult is having this connection with people yeah. and not calling suppliers because that would be it would be very easy to go a suppliers and say like, oh, just take the phone and say like, oh, any carrots and this and this and this. And this. Uh, I think um, having this team uh, just going for the ingredients um, is making us very proud. And, and, and it's, of course, it, they just don't go for products. They go for, for stories and they go to, to yeah. connect people. And now we are so connected with food. Like It's, it's just amazing uh, how, how food is connecting the whole world. Yeah, I mentioned to you before we started this this setup that we were in Poland four or five years ago filming uh, two or three shows, and I had a really great fun. One of the Polish food wasn't exactly my bag. It tends to be very heavy and porky and potato But there's this one chef, uh, Wojciech Amaro, who's in Warsaw, has a Michelin star. Um, great chef. Great, he's amazing, and he was he's he's a he's Polish, born and bred, and super proud of like you, super proud of his country. And but, but when you think of Poland, you know there's no coastline. There's, you don't think there's no viticulture, there's no wine. So it's kind of and it's had a, all, not unlike Peru. It's had kind of a tough cultural history. Sitting between the Soviet Union and Germany wasn't the most comfortable uh. backyard to be in, right? For the years historically. But but Wojciech uh, keeps a list. He has these huge books of what's available every day of the year, 365 days a year, from Poland. He only uses Polish ingredients. Um, and he told me, he said, you know, when I get to September, it's crazy. Because, like, by the third week of September, that's the best. I have, like, 365 ingredients that I can source from. My guys call me up and they say, there's a mushroom available now. Or there's a lake fish that's available now. And then that's how he does, too. So he's, like you, he's finding inspiration in sourcing and networking with people throughout his country for really obscure things that turn out to be delicious. But yeah, you're not going to call up your, your purveyor. And yeah, but when, when you see these guys, that you know, the cooks going to, to, to the Andes and, and, and they come up with, with ingredients, they're so like proud and, and they're like, they are amazed. So, so they go back to the kitchen and they, they see the pros in a right. different way. Right, they're stoked to completely Because they, 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 they've, they, have, they have experienced maybe the whole day just picking one by one one of, of these little spheres right. and it's totally different than, than just call one supplier and say hey, bring me 2,000 of these little spheres and, and you know I get it so you have again we're, we're getting back to the book again uh, Virgilio Martinez is my guest the name of the book Central which is the name of his restaurant in Lima, Peru uh, Peru is famous for its vast variety of potatoes it's the birthplace of potatoes you've got hundreds of varieties and I saw corn everywhere I went and all kinds of different corn so you have a dish in this book called Diversidad de Maiz but it's a play around. Let's talk about that dish again, because it's not like it's not like when that plate comes to your table, it's five different types of corn or something. It's like you have to think. It's this intellectual thing. Talk about what this dish is and how you make it. Yeah, uh, we were inspired about uh, the harvesting of, of corn and and, and uh, these different varieties, and and we of course we we just we, we support uh, varieties and, and and different species, so. Uh, when we saw these uh, great corns and, and different colors, different different flavors and, and, and different textures, we tried to make one dish which, uh, in one ecosystem, uh, uh, that uh, people is just growing this this corn, and yeah, we, we just create one dish uh, which is. Which is coming is coming at the beginning as a snack. So we, we make a, a kind of a liquefied ceviche of corn, <laughs> and then uh, we use the husk of the corn. Then, then we use uh, yellow corn, uh, blue corn. Uh, we use um, uh, red corn. We use cancha corn. Uh, we use another one, another one called San Geronimo corn. And yeah, it's well. The good thing about corns in Peru is that sometimes you don't get this in, in Cusco, but then you go to another place, Ayacucho or, or some other place in Indonesia, and you get them. So uh, for us, it's difficult to understand seasonality. Mm. Because when I was trained as a chef, everything, everything was about seasonality, and then everything was getting molecular, and then everything was getting uh, local. So I think, yeah... 
because of our geography, I think we deserve to do something different. What's the tumbo fruit being used for here? Only the pulp. What are you using that for uh, as an ingredient? As a, as a sweetener. As a sweetener. This is, again, yeah. so one of these ingredients that you source, you also have this aji amarillo, which I've seen. This is, that's like everywhere. That's yeah, like a, yeah. I think, I think probably that's one of the most important ingredients in Peru. Talk about that dish because I saw it almost everywhere we went. Talk about what, what it is, how it's made. The, the aji amarillo. Yeah. Well, aji amarillo is an ingredient. Right. Uh, it's a yellow chili pepper. It's a yellow pepper. Yeah, and uh, we use a lot to make sofritos. You know sofrito, of course. Right. Uh, but our sofrito has like a, it's very traditional. It has like a, onions, uh, olive oil, garlic, and then at the end we add a, a let's say a brunoise of ají amarillo or a paste of, of yellow chili pepper. And with that you have a, a base of I think that's the base of Peruvian cuisine. It seemed everywhere I went, whether it was mostly in puree form, that sort of nice, thick, and yellow puree, but the taste was amazing. Like a sofrito, but it has a sweetness and that peppery edge. Yeah, that's the sweetness and a little bit of, you know, spiciness. A bit of spice. Yeah. Um, talk about avocados in Peru, because you guys are like the biggest exporters, but there's all kinds of avocados. You talked about being, I forget which part of the country you were in. Um, I'll turn my pages quickly here, but uh, uh, an avocado that's, there's an avocado in Peru that exists somewhere that's big and round and you can almost eat it like an apple. Yeah, and actually that avocado that we are using, um, you know, it's funny because we used to sell foie gras uh, at Central. And you used to serve foie gras. Yeah, and foie gras is not part of our culture. It's not part of our. It's not part of. I, I, I like foie gras, of course, <laughs> but I think this. I didn't want to, to send a message, so uh, we're trying to, to find the the, the 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 foie vegetal. You know, the the, the foie gras, the vegetable foie gras, and mm. we 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 found uh, this avocado, and we pansio the avocado. And it actually has this, um, I mean, it's not foie gras. But no, but it's yes. funny. As I'm thinking about it as a chef, avocados are very fatty. They're full of oil, right? It's not animal fat. It's natural fat. Yeah. And I remember once an, another chef friend I knew got an avocado and well, a, a traditional avocado, but grilled, cut it in half and grilled it like a steak right over the flames. And I remember eating it thinking, oh, God, it's, like, like, it's yeah. like really well-marbled meat. Uh, yeah, maybe ten years ago, nobody nobody believed about you know grilling avocado, uh, uh, roasting avocado, right? And that's what we do. We so you now, treat it like a protein. You treat it like a piece of meat. Yeah, and most of our food is like yeah, uh, basically it's vegetables, uh, and then uh, of course uh, proteins are coming, but not in a big portion. And all right, in, in, so in this dish, I'm just going to bore down. So we have this dish called palto. I'm not going to mispronounce it, but it's an avocado. Um, it, when it gets to the plate, I'm not sure you'd quite recognize it. But as you're reading the ingredients, it's got beet powder, one ingredient. It's got white and green lake algae crunch. Yeah. <laughs> and again, this is the kind of stuff that, like, you know, w w what is that? So you're clearly um, you're you going know, that that dish is coming from from the Sacred Valley in in, in Cusco and. Um, we saw these beautiful avocados, and then we saw these algae forming on uh, the water. We saw the the, the, the beets. Uh, we saw also kiwicha, which is which is amaranth, and um, and then we we decided to use the whole avocado. So the sauce is is uh, is made with the skins of the avocado. Um, then we cover the avocado with the leaves of the of the avocado tree. So it's quite um, a, a real, uh, a very good experience about about using the whole avocado, right? right. And adding uh, this sense of uh, ecosystem, of course, which is our main message. When one of the things that I remember seeing in the kitchen <laughs> was because you was hanging on the wall. I think it was pretty obvious. Talk about this beef heart dish that you have because it's funny it's very you don't see a lot of meat I think they had a, you had a short rib on my lunch menu that was a protein yeah. that was a more familiar protein but you know you don't see you, you don't like as a chef for whatever reason philosophically personally preferentially I don't know you can tell me but you're not a very meat centric restaurant 
There's, no. You're not going to get like a pork chop or a chicken breast or a, a, a cut of steak ordered medium rare or foie gras. I mean, things that we normally associate with yeah. restaurant dining or fine dining. But the beef heart, tell me about that beef heart and how you use it and how it, how it, how it comes to be what I saw just hanging there on the wall, preserved or smoked or salted or whatever it was. That dish, uh, well, the, 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 the heart uh, of the beef... There's, there's nothing new about that because we 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 do kind of anticuchos like brochettes of of of, um, of of heart uh, grilled, but in this case we cover the the, the avocado with cacao and ají panca, which is red chili pepper, which is not not that spicy. We cover it with this uh, cacao cacao leaves, and we let it dry for three days. Until we, we the, the the heart start to reduce, and then we go to the um, to the dining room, the chefs, and great, and we grade the the, the, the heart. So it's, it's quite impressive. <laughs> yeah, you know? it is. Because the and things, so the things, people, pretty some, gnarly some looking. Some people get you know a bit upset, you know, uh, you know, seeing his heart, and but I think it's part of, of the. I mean, we we need to provide some, of course, some some fun. This is, again, this is so you're out foraging. I don't know who you're with, your wife, your crew, whatever. This dish, arbol y alga dulce. So you're, you're wandering around uh, the last day of a trip looking for a kind of a tree, a, a, a warango tree, um, which is found in high temperatures facing them, blah, blah, blah. And you're on the beach, and, and you just cre- you have this idea of, of creating flavors. and get- Talk about that, because this is, again, this sort of spontaneous... The idea of recipes coming to you, yeah, by just seeing. And that, that's going back to the creative process. That uh, sometimes we go for twenty ingredients or one ingredient, and we end up, uh, you know, finding nothing. Uh, sometimes we go for one ingredient, and we end up finding like forty. Yeah, and uh, that day we we're like tired of we didn't see anything. So we we say like, okay, let's just go to the beach for for, for you know, let's chill, just chill, yeah. <laughs> And and we were just swimming and we saw all, all these great uh, seaweeds and uh, and the warango trees, uh, which are uh, trees that grows in in in, in a very desertic coast. So we were very this um, we were kind of let 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 down because um, we didn't see anything in, in back in, in the mountains and we went to uh, to the desert and we found everything there. Well, we're not supposed to find stuff, you know, <laughs> in a deserted coast. It's it's crazy. Um, what what's mash, mashua? M a s h u a. What is that? Yeah, that's a vegetable root. How do you use it? Yeah, uh, we we just um, we cover it with salt and uh, we. This is what it looks like. I'm sorry, on page one. This is what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. And if you if you see kind of like a tube. Page, uh, we we cover it with salt. And uh, we 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 just, I mean, we we can serve them raw, slice the the mashua, and then we we cover it with salt, and, and then we, we just bake the mashua. And uh, also we cover it with clay, and we bake the mashua, mm. and we serve the mashua with clay, so people have to break the the table side. Yeah, because there's a lot of that. I remember there was a lot of. Not not a drama, like you said. The beef hearts grated in the dining room. Yeah, uh, there were di- sauces that were applied in the dining room that come out of little. Even your plates were beautiful. Your plates, like beautiful pottery, beautiful ceramic yeah. slabs of rock. Yeah, I, I think at one point uh, we we love to, to do that, like uh, in an artistic way, and we we think that what we do sometimes is art. Uh, I'm not I'm not uh, afraid to say that. Uh, uh, but of course, uh, every single dish uh, has a meaning, and um, yeah, and, and we do different stuff with with, uh, with dishes and, uh, and ingredients. So an- another dish you had because some of the food, I mean, some of the plates. Again, if, if you haven't seen this book, it's amazing. The name of the book is Central Ver- Virgilio Martinez, the chef. Um, it's his restaurant. And his wife's and his crew's in Lima, Peru. It's pretty astonishing if you ever get to Lima. And you, you, if, if, you, if you're going to go to Lima and you know three months in advance, try and book a table. I'll put it that way. So I went for lunch and dinner. And I, we're not going to talk about the – I mean, restaurant's beautiful. You walk in. It's, a, it's like a brownstone building. 
upstairs is like a laboratory where you you have got like a library of books. You clearly you're encouraging your whole staff to go upstairs and play, to cook, to experiment. Yeah. Uh, you have a garden on the roof. You also have crazy. I, I don't know. Um, you tell me. Why do you have that? It was like a reverse osmosis water filtration system in the restaurant. All of the restaurant water you cook with and you serve the customers is in yeah. your own bottle. And you have a pretty expensive-looking unit up there yeah, on the second. You know, at the beginning, the water that was just for the staff. And then uh, we decided, we decided to, 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 to use this water for, for our garden. And then we decided to bottle the water and serve the water for, for the people, for the guests. With, you know, instead of using uh, well, tap water, yeah, tap water, or even uh, water coming from from Italy, Some, or right? France, someplace else, right? A bottled water of Pellegrino, which is not part of our our ideas. We are talking about, about uh, recycle our bottles, um, using our water. And the wine list was great. I remember that part too. Even though we had lunch, we didn't drink much wine. Who's in charge of your wine program? Uh, we have uh, Greg Smith. He's he's American and he's he's in charge of the the the, the wine program. And it was really beautiful, really really yeah. well curated list. I really I remember walking through the cellar and thinking, wow, recognizing some bottles. He had some really unusual finds in there too. So. Yeah, you know, I, I don't I don't I don't I have no idea about the wine program uh, because I trust so much on, on the team. The, the, there's five guys in charge of, uh, of the wines, and they're doing great job about about wines and then the experience of the wine is just amazing and I, I i don't I, I just don't do that because uh, i don't see that because i think there's so much information nowadays for chefs you know we're talking about explorations and then the cooking and staying in the restaurant so uh, i think we we need to to, to leave this to to the experts and there's more and more of them i have a lot of wine guests on this show all the time i travel i mean we've we filmed the 2005 Beaujolais Harvest. We were in Bordeaux filming the Harvest last year. I've been to Alberino, Spain, Riches Paisas. Um, we were just in Champagne a few months ago. I love, I mean, for me, wine has to be every night with dinner. <clears throat> but there's amazing how the education of wine is just increasing. Uh, there's so many smart, younger kids today on the floor in their 20s that are just like expert psalms. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's nuts. Yeah. In New York, it's, it's off the hook. It's growing, yeah. Talk about this dish. Because this, it's fun. I, I open up this page, and a lot of you, a lot of the <clears throat> the food that you see in the book is on on purpose. You've, I don't want to say manipulated, but you have a lot of technique, and there's a, it's you've kind of changed the texture. You've played with the color. You've you're playing with textures and colors and cooking methods across the board. So sometimes when the food comes to the customer, it's not exactly recognizable in a traditional way. It's kind of yeah. like you have to sort of think and dissect it and take it apart and taste pieces. But then I see this dish called Amarillo de Tuberculosis or whatever it's called. <laughs> this thing that looks like ramen. What is this dish? This is yeah, so yeah, cool. Yeah, I was about to say that. It looks like ramen. I get this and I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, okay, this looks like ramen noodles, but it isn't ramen. What, uh, what is this dish and what was the inspiration? Uh, well, because uh, we were just... Uh, we had so many tubers, uh, and, and, and we just we decided to do what dish, what warm dish with tubers, and uh, and you know slice them like like spaghetti style, and the broth is coming from the water from, from the same uh, tuber. So it's you know we 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 make more power to the to, to the to, to the. Um, to the to the tuber in that dish because uh, which is a I think it's a, it's a mashua or so we serve the mashua we serve with with a broth of mashua and then we we add Andean uh, herbs. It's beautiful, really, 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 really beautiful. Um, one last one, and then we're going to let you go. What is what did I make a note of here? There was something again. The name the name of the book Central. It's great. Uh, Virgilio is a super talented chef. I was lucky enough to eat at his restaurant. Unfortunately, I, I couldn't have stayed as long as I wanted or eaten as much as I wanted. Yeah, you agenda were. I remember this dish. Okay, now I glad. So, chocos andinos. So, one of the things you served, and I don't know whether it came as a, a portion by itself or whether it was part of another dish, but I remember it came to the table and it looks sort of familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. And then yeah. I went to eat it and it reminded me of 
my gra- Italians eat a lot of polenta, so it's gr- coarse ground cornmeal. And my grandmother, who was a great, great, great cook, used to always make. We'd eat polenta with tomato sauce. It's like instead of pasta with meat and tomato sauce, and it's like a peasant food because it's cheap. It's ground up grains. But then she would always make extra polenta, refrigerate it, and saute it in the mornings. So we'd crisp it up in a pan. And I, I, to this day, I love it. I would eat polenta with bacon and eggs or polenta yeah. with sausage and eggs, sometimes a little maple syrup. It was beautiful. So this disc comes to our table in Lima. And I'm looking at it. I'm smelling it, and I'm poking it. And then I take a bite, and I'm like, what But that's great because uh, with that, with that uh, example, we're playing with uh, memories. So talk about this dish, because it, it reminded me of, like, kind of on purpose, like a scorched, super dense cornbread, with cornmeal, corn, corn, yeah, cornbread in America. Yeah, it's ready to cornbread, it's ready to tortillas, uh, we call it uh, choclos andinos, and uh, for us, it's a, a celebration of the harvest of, of, of corn, so whenever we find the best corn, we do that plate. And how is it made? How, is, how do you do it? So you have fresh corn coming in? Yeah, we have fresh corn. Now we just grate the corn with uh, the water coming from the from the leftovers of, of the corn, which is full uh, of starch. Very very starch, yeah. And then we just put in molds and we bake we bake it. So it just thickens. So methods are different um, because yeah, of course uh, we are inspiring uh, our inspiration is coming from the ingredient and and the people. And actually, that uh, corn uh, thing. Uh, We, we, we experienced uh, one preparation in the Andes with some families and we, we yeah, of course we did something different but that's the idea and, and, and we just torch at the end just to make this smokiness But it's great because it's it's so here I, here in one meal I'm seeing like this really kind of astonishing manipulative technique, but all for an end, not manipulation for its own sake. There's, there's very modernist cuisine, and then suddenly this thing arrives on the table that looks like I could have eaten this in someone's hut. 5,000 feet above sea level that grandma ground up corn with a pestle, yeah. smashed it into a ball, <laughs> and stuck it on the side of an oven. Like that's like very primal basic food. Yeah, you know, as simple as it gets. Because sometimes we have like so unknown products and so unknown dishes that you you don't have a reference. And right. If we continue doing like this for the, uh, we always think like this. If we do like maybe five courses that you had no idea right. of them, at one point you are not gonna be feeling like probably happy because you're, <laughs> you're gonna be like lost. So at one point we need to play with your memory. What well, did it worked? I mean, it actually look. I'm telling yeah. you, as I got that, because everyone on the table, my so, cameraman was there, and the other, yeah. no one knew what it was. And I said, "Wait!" And I'm telling him, "I said it's, it's cornmeal. It's corn. Yeah. This is yeah. like this is really simple. This is like really like ancient Indian cooking. This is as basic as it gets. Someone was making this dish six thousand years ago. Something like yeah. this dish. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. so it was great. It totally worked. It was totally it was out of context with the the rest of the of the meal. But yeah, very comforting in a way because suddenly this thing comes. It's like oh. An old friend. <laughs> now I know. Now I know this guy. Now I've got a reference for him. Virgilio, so cool, man. Uh, surfer, skateboarder. Uh, I guess we're all glad that you didn't get sponsored by Vans or uh, or, or any of the big board companies because you broke a shoulder and ended up in a kitchen and traveling the world. And and um, and it's so neat because I think too, you know, in reading your book and in kind of hearing your story. You know, you would like 10 years ago, you were much less of a chef than you are now. Five years ago, you were a par- partial chef. So you're one of these guys who continues to push, push, push. The restaurant continues to evolve. Oh, yeah. You've got a great team. Your wife is in the kitchen with you. Congratulations on the baby. Nine thank months you. old. That's thank great you. news. Thank Thanks you. for coming to New York. No, thank you for being here. And, and, and yeah. So, folks, if you're ever if you're planning a trip to Lima, um, and and you know in advance you're going, try and book a table, lunch, or dinner at Restaurant Central in the Miraflores district. It's really an eye-opening place. Really, really a game changer. Uh, And if you can't get there, then buy the book. Uh, it's called Central. The author is the chef, Virgilio Martinez. Uh, it's Faden is the publisher. Um, it's the next best thing, I suppose, to being there. Thanks Thank for coming you. on. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for listening to Food Talk. Mike Kalameko Thank signing you. off. We'll see you next week. Thank, Thank you for the invitation.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.